Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, and we are talking about a number of the issues that we talked about last week that were kind of new-ish in the news, and now they're not so new, but there's more development. Naomi, what shows did you cover today? I looked at State of the Union and also Face the Nation. And what would you rate those shows? I'm going to give each one a two. Oh, wow. Two. So that is not good. That's bad. Yeah. I, a less cynical person might give them threes, but I'm giving them a two. They're not okay. They're bad. Actively bad. I did not find them a fruitful use of my time. Right. Not from front to end. So I imagine we'll hear more about that. No, we're not going to talk about it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Brendan, what did you look at? I looked at this week and I looked at Fox News Sunday. And I felt that both of them did an at least an okay job. I'm thinking that this week gets a little higher rating for me. It's probably more in the good category. So I think that is a four. And then I would put Fox News Sunday in the three category, even though there were some really good points across the board. I felt like kind of the centerpiece was Chris Wallace's interview with a top advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. And in that interview, I don't think that Chris Wallace did an excellent job. In fact, I think at various points he did an actively not good job. So on that issue, since it dominated their show, they kind of get, you know, not so good points. Yeah, I hear you on that. I feel like the shows didn't have a narrative and there wasn't there were standout moments for sure. But they they felt kind of hollow is my take. Speaking of hollow, someone might say, wait a minute, those ratings are hollow. Where's Meet the Press? Meet the Press. Was gone today. It was in England, hanging out with Ted Lasso. (laughs) Preempted by the Premier League. Yes. (laughs) You know, there's not a lot of things that I'd be okay taking over the Sunday morning political shows, but Ted Lasso specifically (laughs) would be okay. Absolutely. Naomi, why don't we begin with quality questionable? I see that you kind of slid a questionable in here without talking to me about, which is fine, because I was like, okay, I guess I need to find a quality. Oh, no. (laughs) No? This is a quality. But you put it in the questionable category. I just mislabel. (laughs) I see. That's fine, because mine can be quality or questionable. Oh, great. (laughs) You know, it's... Glass half empty, glass half full sort of thing. So mine's tell me about your full, quality full. moment. Okay, mine's definitely a quality. And I thought it was one of the standout moments on State of the Union. It was the interview that Dana Bash had with Congresswoman Lucy McBath. She is a Democrat from Georgia. And it was part of Dana Bash's series of badass women in D.C., badass women in politics i can't remember exactly it's badass women something and it was an amazing interview that really explored 
the motivations for Congresswoman McBath's political journey, which essentially started immediately after she lost her son to gun violence. Take a listen to two clips. The first clip will look at that moment when she learned that her son had been killed and how it pushed her into politics. And the second clip was kind of the closing of the interview and really shows the humanity of our policymakers. Jordan's father called to tell her the gut-wrenching news. Jordan's been shot. And just this primal wail came out of me. And I was like, where's Jordan? And, you know, I just started screaming. And Jordan's father said, he told me, you know, Jordan is dead. And I just, I was just screaming because I felt like at that moment that everything I had done to protect him, it wasn't good enough. It didn't matter because he was a young black male and it was simply because of the color of his skin. She redirected her pain into purpose became active in the gun control group Moms Demand Action. I started speaking out about Jordan's tragedy. Any person that would allow me to speak or tell my story, I, that's what I did. A lot of people would get, get under the covers, pull them over their head and never want to get out. But that's not the way I was raised. I was raised that you fight to protect and care for the people that you believe in and that you love. She wanted to take us to her son Jordan's gravesite, where she comes often. What's the graduation from? Kindergarten. Pictures on his headstone, snapshots of his short life. This is the place she says she feels closest to him. I feel like I can, I can talk to him out here. Um, what I talk to him a lot about is how hard the work is. And I said, you know, I'm trying to do everything I was raising you to do, so I can't be a hypocrite. I never thought of it that way, that... You're living the life that you taught him to live. I mean, all the things that I worry about for my district, for the country, for my family. It's just what I was trying to teach him to do. That is his legacy. Even though I thought I was sowing the seed into him to live that out. His legacy is my legacy. Thank you so much to Congresswoman McBath for sharing your story and Jordan's story. Such powerful journalism here to remind all of us that so many of our of our policymakers have their own personal tragedies that really set the trajectory for them and motivates them to continue this work because it's not easy to leave your family, to leave your community, to go and be in D.C. part-time, practically full-time, and go back and forth, and that the work is grueling, and you get angry emails and angry calls and people who don't agree with you. But for so many of them, there's a reason why they do that. I mean, this is one of the most powerful two and a half minutes we've played on Polylog, these clips. They're just gut-wrenching and really, I mean, you just feel it. You feel her pain in those moments. Uh, You know, you mentioned tragedy, of course. Many will mention Joe Biden 
being motivated by the tragedies that really kind of bookend his career, his wife and and his whole family being in that terrible car accident when he was first elected senator, his two sons surviving, his wife and daughter dying, and then one of those sons dying of brain cancer right as he left the White House as vice president. Absolutely. And I think these stories juxtaposed to other politicians, especially right now, who seem to be fighting for fighting sake and stowing lies and engaging in conspiracy theory, make this grueling work of policymaking. They make it harder. They make it impossible when there are people that are elected with their very own deep personal tragedies who just want to see some things fixed. Yeah, it's a huge contrast. Huge contrast. Brendan, what's your quality, maybe questionable moment? Okay, so I will spin this into a questionable moment. And this is a series of, well, actually, it's just one. (laughs) But there were a series of pretty good, straightforward questions that George Stephanopoulos asked in the last segment of this week. And let me tell you what this is about. This last segment is about unidentified aerial phenomena. UAPs, as the government calls it, we all know it as UFOs, Unidentified Flying Objects. And there have been a lot of UFOs in the news lately because there is a new... <laughs> You're going to say there's been a lot of UFOs lately. Lately, yes, it seems <laughs> like it. We've all seen them. <laughs> yeah, I saw one, you saw one, we've all seen one. No, uh, it's in the news a lot because, you know, kind of like slipped into the Defense Authorization Act that was passed in December was a requirement for the intelligence community to provide a public unclassified report to Congress explaining what the hell the Department of Defense has been seeing and documenting through video, through radar signals, through other things of objects in the air, often seen by Navy pilots, that seem to defy the laws of physics and are confirmed in many different ways from many different viewpoints, and yet they don't know what it is, where it is, who it is, and where it's coming from. So this report is supposed to come out next month. There has been lots of buzz. There was a 60 Minutes report on last Sunday, and here it is on this week. I do want to note that there was an absolutely excellent piece in The New Yorker that went into the details on this, and I would highly recommend it because it really does go deep, deep, deep into both UFOs and the government's varying ways of cover-up or changing the way we think about it from the 1950s and 60s through today. All that said, this week, George Stephanopoulos, at the end, had on Louis Elizondo. He is a former director of the program that was looking at these things, and he was asked really good direct questions that I would love to hear the answer to from George Stephanopoulos, but listen to this kind of lack of answer that drove me crazy and makes this a questionable moment. We're joined by Lou Elizondo, former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program at the Department of Defense, and our military analyst, Colonel Stephen Ganyard. And uh, Mr. Elizondo, let me begin with you. You Your program studied the national security implications of unidentified aerial phenomenon. Based on what you know, do you believe these sightings are evidence of alien visitors? Well, George, they're they're certainly evidence of something. Uh, We we know that whatever, whatever it is in our skies, is real. The question is, what is it? And and of course, that you can go down the rabbit hole, uh, or we can look at it from a foreign adversarial per- perspective. 
The bottom line is we, we simply don't know. What we know is that these, whatever these aircraft are, are displaying beyond next generation capabilities. And I think what's concerning from a national security perspective, uh, they can outperform anything that we have in our inventory. So George asked a very straightforward question. Do you believe these sightings are evidence of alien visitors? You either believe they are or you believe they aren't. And it just drives me crazy. Like, we can't get a straight answer from Louis Elizondo. There are multiple moments where George asks questions along these lines. Like, just tell us what you think. What do you think this is? Yes or no? And he just, he won't say. Same thing happened with uh, former Senator Harry Reid, who was Senate Majority Leader, who helped get a lot of these things started. He had an editorial that was published last week in the New York Times talking about this. It just raised more questions. Like, just be clear, people. I mean, tell us what you believe. You don't have to provide classified information. Just tell us which way of the coin you, you fall on, you know? What side are you on? It reminds me of this moment, and here's a reference, to Back to the Future. A moment in Back to the Future 2 which was always my favorite because they went all across time. And our main character, Marty McFly, has a lot of questions. And he is very frustrated by the lack of answers. Here's the clip. Marty, are you feeling all right? No! No, I'm not feeling all right. I don't understand one damn thing that's going on around here and why nobody could give me a simple straight answer. Oh, they must have hit you over the head hard this time. That's me, Marty McFly. That's all of us. What the hell is this? Hopefully we have something that we learn next month, and it's not just a bunch of crap like this. Well, there's certainly evidence of something. Oh, look, it's more grainy footage. Ooh, wonderful. Great. (sighs) Naomi, is there something a little more substantial in your something about politics today? I don't know if substantial's the word. Brendan, I think last week or the week before, at some point the last few weeks, you talked about how on the Sunday News Show, the conversation about the Republican Party is not great. Well, I, I was pointing out the conversation about Trump in particular was extremely negative last week. Okay, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I wanted to know about this ongoing focus of the Republican Party and if we're finding it worthwhile, if we're not, what's the point of it? What what are they trying to do and are they successful in their exploration of the current state of the Republican Party. The shows. The shows, correct. Specifically, I'm looking at two back-to-back interviews that Dana Bash had on State of the Union with Republicans openly criticizing the GOP. Now, for the most part, my gut reaction is usually internal criticism of either party is good and healthy and done publicly is even better better and that there can be a lot of learning that can happen in public about changes within a party changes with any political system but i feel particularly frustrated by these interviews and and i don't know i guess what i'm trying to say is this segment will be like a thinking out loud segment because i'm not sure how i feel one way or the other but i something's bothering me and i'm thinking it will probably continue for a while and bothering you basically about how the shows are covering republicans Correct. So the first interview that I'm going to show a clip, a, a couple clips from, is when Dana Bash interviews Congressman Peter Meyer. Meir. Mahir? Mahir. <laughs> and he's a 
relatively new congressman from Michigan, a Republican, and he's one of those few Republicans like Liz Cheney, like Adam Kinzinger, who he was on one of my shows, mm-hmm, who voted for the impeachment against Trump, who also wants this independent commission about the January 6th insurrection. And he was on talking about just how frustrating it's been seeing the reticence of other Republicans to criticize Trump. Take a listen to this first clip in which he talks about how prominent leaders like Minority Leader McCarthy are backing from their original claims of in an, a thorough investigation. So here's what GOP leader Kevin McCarthy said on the House floor just a week after the Capitol attack. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. And the president's immediate action also deserves congressional action, which is why I think a fact-finding commission and a censure resolution would be prudent. So, Congressman, McCarthy was for a commission before he was against it. How do you explain his flip-flop on this? You know, I think we've seen, and, and I said this in my, my remarks on the House floor, we've seen a number um, of, of, of individuals who are passionate, who are, who are rightly critical on January 6th, the 7th, the 8th, you know, the week after, uh, that have since softened their tone and, and chosen to take a different path. And honestly, I was hoping that this January 6th commission could be a chance for us to set what we viewed as partisan politics aside. It's important to remember that Nancy Pelosi started off with a stacked seven to five commission that would have run roughshod over any sense of objective or nonpartisan norms uh, that was much more styled on the sense of a Benghazi commission. Uh, She was rebuked for that by her own party, and she ended up agreeing to a bipartisan commission that uh, was along the exact same lines uh, as what our leadership was seeking for a January 6th commission. And, And now we are missing an opportunity to really focus on producing an objective assessment for the American people, an authoritative document that can help us move past this event, not by forgetting about it, not by trying to whitewash it, not by uh, seeking to kind of memory hole what happened on January 6th or uh, revise it, uh, as we've seen on a lot of news networks like OANN and Newsmax Mm -hmm. uh, that claim, well, look at the folks walking through statuary hall staying within the the velvet ropes you know this was a a peaceful gathering so i haven't seen congressman peter mahir on the sunday shows i think this is the first time i've noticed him and i thought it's important what he's saying but it just this coupled with what you observed last week brennan it just got me thinking what do the sunday morning political shows want to explore want to examine like what are they trying to show is it just this state of chaos is it to put blame on inaction by the republican party it just seems very strange to me to have this like camera on the republican party like this is so dysfunctional this is so wrong and then i don't know no one is saying what what we should be doing or why they're doing what they're doing it doesn't feel like explanatory enough it's just very like observational and there's no sense to me 
of, okay, well, the people who are frustrated with the Republican Party, this is what they're going to do next. Or this is, you know, they're going to propose some other alternative or they would like the commission now to do X, Y, Z. Like, it's just very matter of fact without a sense of, which is typical of the Sunday morning shows. And this is what it means, right? It, It feels like the evening news on a Tuesday or Wednesday rather than like a deeper reflection that I'm usually seeing on Sunday morning. So I think there are two things that that jump out to me about why these sorts of Republicans have been invited on to talk about this. I think there's probably three reasons, okay? Number one, let's see if I can remember them all as I describe them. Number one, possibly people who are against this commission don't want to go on the shows to talk about it. Correct. 100%. And so they are trying to find other Republicans to talk about it. Number two, maybe they don't want to hear from pro-Trump Republicans or Republicans who support the insurrection. The shows don't want to invite those people. The shows have had enough with these people. That is also true. They are true. full of lies. They are spewing things. They are combative. They are not necessarily the types of people they want to invite on anymore, right? That is also true. I and, think that's and then the, definitely the case. The other side of it is, why are they covering the Republicans as deeply as they are right now? Well, there's a few legitimate reasons to do so. Number one being, they have... You should say A. <laughs> yeah. A being that... Republicans in our state, the way that we are running Congress, the way that we run the Senate, they essentially have veto power over almost anything because of the filibuster. So what they do and what they say matters, even though they're in the minority, they're not in a great minority. Okay. B, though, is that one of the biggest stories in American politics right now is that one of our parties seems to be very much sliding towards authoritarianism, anti-democracy, you know, democracy, uh, putting in all these rules against democracy, supporting or trying to whitewash a true insurrection. I mean, imagine if one of the political parties was taking, saying, we're not for the 9-11 commission after 9-11 happened. Like, that would be insane. And this is sort of the, of the same ilk. So it's a no, big story. So I, I don't disagree with any of that. I'm saying in response, I don't know if I think the approach that the shows are doing and it's trying to explain this moment is enough or is right. working. Right. That is my frustrating point. They're not being like forward enough and what their purpose is and where they're going. Yeah. So like if your concern is that the Republican Party is getting has these like growing strains of authoritarianism, then have someone that speaks to that, right? That shows what that means in other countries or shows how it's grown, you know, from digital to in person to the insurrection to kind of the the themes that are common in what, what's your name? Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Green. Taylor Green, yeah. Representative Green. I, I feel like there's more substantive ways to make the point more explicit. Yeah. And it can be frustrating as well, because during the Trump administration, we often heard from people from the Trump administration. And then we heard often Republicans who were questioning the Trump administration's choices. We heard from like anti-Trump Republicans a lot. And it's like, hmm, maybe we could hear from Democrats from time to time. Now Democrats are in power and we're still hearing a lot of criticism of Republicans from Republicans rather than from Democrats. Exactly. And and I think there's something to be said. I, I don't mean I don't want to hear Republicans criticizing Republicans. Like, I think that's, like I said, it's super healthy. But there's something that is missing in their angle. A couple other examples. In the angle of the shows. Of the shows, correct. Another example of this is literally immediately after the interview with Congressman Mahir, 
Stanabash interviews former Senator Scott Brown, who served four years as ambassador to New Zealand under President Trump. And he recently wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe about essentially like our crumbling democracy. And Brown was there saying the same exact thing as Congressman Mahir. Like, so, so similar. Take a listen to his frustration and what he thinks Trump's role in all of this is. Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said Trump is practically and morally responsible for what happened. You're a former senator and ambassador. Do you agree with them that Trump bears responsibility for the insurrection? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he bears responsibility. I think his presidency was diminished as a result of this. And and I think he's paying a price. Uh, He's been impeached twice. He was impeached for those actions. A lot of the great things that he did working on China, uh, getting the vaccine out, uh, developed right away, uh, looking at what he did with with Iran and Russia and and in the Indo-Pacific specifically, the amazing things he did during the Christchurch attacks in in, uh, New Zealand. I mean, all those things are by the wayside now. Uh, That is why it's imperative to find out what role everybody played and figure out why, first of all. Uh, I can't believe I thought I was watching. I was back for two days on the job and I see our capital. I thought it was either an action movie, a banana republic, some type of dictatorship. Uh, Like I was embarrassed. I was angry. And I want to make sure it never, ever, ever happens again because we are the greatest country in the world and we have amazing opportunities. And I lived in other parts of the world and I visited there and there's no place like this country. And yes, we have our faults and we're addressing them, but we have a great social fabric of people who care Mm -hmm. deeply deeply about who we are as Americans, and we got to fix this right away. You said that uh, the former president does bear some responsibility. You probably know this. He is still pushing the, the big lie from the election. Just yesterday, he called 2020 the crime of the century, alleging massive crime and said the election was rigged and stolen. Do you want him to just stop? Listen, I disagree with the president. Uh, you know, any any problems, and, and I know this has been conveyed to him and his administration and all of his team, if there were concerns about the election, as the Supreme Court said with, with the Latches decision, you should have gone and figured it out before the election, not after the fact. Well, I do think it's noteworthy to hear from one of Trump's own ambassadors. But isn't that different than what we've seen from, yeah, Nikki Haley, who also said something similar You're right. It does seem a little bit like old news. But again, it's new news because of this commission. I don't know. It still feels off. There still isn't enough here for me. I think I think they need to couple this with experts or they need to make a timeline, some explainer of some kind to show the trajectory of Republicans reverting back to Trump. Like just using one moment to say, and look, Republicans are still sticking by Trump. There's zero incentive for me to keep up with that story. Is when I like that's what feels really frustrating. It feels similar to a story I heard three weeks ago, and six weeks ago, and eight weeks ago. And maybe there's like this new angle about the commission, but like make it more explicit. I feel like if you're not paying very close attention to this slide in the Republican Party, or if you're not deep into the political news, the way this story is being covered by the Sunday shows doesn't pull you in in any way. Well, it's interesting you say that because that is my something in politics as well. At least that topic is, not necessarily that angle. But I do want to talk about how it was covered on Fox News Sunday and a little bit on this week because it did stand out to me that even on Fox News Sunday, 
literally, practically, every voice was saying Republicans are truly on the wrong side of this issue. And there were actually what I thought some very interesting insights on that topic discussed on the panel of Fox News Sunday. The only voice we heard saying Republicans should be doing what they're doing was one of the Republicans who's doing it, and that is Senator Roy Blunt, who is on Fox News Sunday. But I do want to play some of these voices from the panel on Fox News Sunday, because I thought it was noteworthy to hear, even from Fox News contributor Guy Benson. Take a listen to this first clip from the panel. So, Guy, which side do you think has the better side of this argument? The Republicans who appears are going to be able to block the commission or Democrats who are pushing for it? Well, the Republicans may have the votes in the Senate, as Senator Blunt alluded to. In terms of the argument, I heard what Senator McConnell just said there. And one person who would disagree is the Republican ranking member on the Homeland Security Committee in the House who helped hammer out a bipartisan deal on this commission. And it's absolutely true that one way or another, there's going to be an investigation by Congress into this attack on Congress, which was an extremely disgraceful moment in our history. The question is, will it be bipartisan with each side having similar powers, not exactly the same, but the exact same number of people that they're responsible for appointing to it? Or will it be a partisan Democratic uh, involved situation, uh, an enterprise that Nancy Pelosi will run. And that's the point that Congressman Kinzer, Kinzinger made. Uh, so I really do think that this is an appropriate purview for Congress to look into. There's a conservative talk radio host saying, look, we had a chance to make this bipartisan, and now we've chosen to have no voice or limited voice on this investigation that'll likely go forward anyway. I remember you just a moment ago, Naomi, said you'd like to see a little more analysis into why Republicans are doing what they're doing. Well, here is Charles Lane, the voice of Charles Lane, on this panel on Fox News Sunday. He is an editorial columnist from The Washington Post. Chuck, even if uh, Republicans take a political hit in killing the commission, as it at least appears now they're going to do, couldn't you argue that it's still smarter politics than creating this panel, which is going to hold public hearings and bring the whole issue? I understand. If not, it'll be like a Benghazi commission. It'll be set up just by one party, uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House. But, you know, an independent commission has a, a real political downside to it as well for Republicans. The independent commission's political downside to the Republicans is that it has more credibility. And of course, this is a very bad story for the Republican Party. I think a lot of Republicans are afraid of what it will find out about their desperate but futile effort to get the president to do something about this mob that was coming for them. <laughs> so I think that's an important point. Republicans don't want this investigation to be a credible one. And George Will goes even deeper into the psychology of this on This Week. George Will, famous Washington Post columnist himself, who is returning to the panel of This Week after a very long absence. George, let me begin with you. We just heard Speaker Pelosi and, and, and Leader McConnell right there. We heard Susan Collins say she's still optimistic for something going forward on this January 6th commission. It's kind of hard to believe it's even controversial. Well, it's controversial for one reason. We have something new in American history that is a political party defined by the terror it feels for its own voters. That's the Republican Party right now. 
every elected official is frightened of his voters, therefore doesn't respect his voters, doesn't like his voters, and is afraid that a vote for this will be seen as an insult to the 45th president. I thought that was an interesting insight I hadn't quite heard said that exact same way that the Republican Party is defined by its fear of its own voters. Interesting. In the interviews I heard on State of the Union, they mentioned how an independent commission would also be have a lot of scrutiny against Nancy Pelosi herself as she is responsible for lots of security in mm. the Capitol. And that they've kind of lost the moment to have that type of scrutiny on the House leadership, which was interesting and I hadn't heard before. I don't think there is enough Republicans necessarily admitting to the fear and deference that they have of their voters, especially when they don't agree with their voters. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Naomi. I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective that Republicans have given up that opportunity to investigate Pelosi in that vein. I do want to take a moment here to play a clip from the interview that Chris Wallace did with Senator Roy Blunt, Republican senator who is opposing this commission. And a lot throughout these Sunday shows, we heard the voice of Mitch McConnell saying, look, there's a lot of other uh, investigations out there. There's all these different investigations the FBI is doing into people who actually breached the Capitol on that date. So what is the point of yet another now partisan-seeming commission? And Chris Wallace tried to address that directly in his questioning of Senator Blunt. Well, let me ask you about that. You are working with two committees, Senate Rules and Senate Homeland Security, both, of course, chaired by Democrats because they're in the majority. And as you say, they're going to come out with a report, we think, as early as as next month. But the issue is whether or not they're going to answer, and this is what Congressman Kinzinger said, some of the key questions uh, that a lot of people have about January 6th. I want to put those up on the on the screen. What was President Trump doing during the riot? Did he refuse to approve sending in the National Guard? Did White House staff and the military work around Mr. Trump with Vice President Pence? Will your report with those two committees, will they answer those questions and have you talked? Have you subpoenaed or have you heard from top officials in the Trump White House? Well, we had two uh, public hearings and we've had uh, several individual interviews with people like the acting secretary of defense, the uh, the secretary of the army. Uh, there's going to be a timeline that will come out that, that talks about what happened, when it happened. Uh, there'll be plenty of uh, answers to the questions, I think, of, of why we had that 30 minute gap between the time that the defense department says they approved National Guard assistance and bef- and the time they told the National Guard that they'd approved that assistance. But, but there sir, are some what questions about, there. I, I don't mean but, to interrupt, but what about what was going on inside the Trump White House? Well, I, I think you've got to decide what's the priority here. Is the priority to secure the Capitol, to do what we need to do to better train, better prepare Capitol Police, decide what we want to do in the future, or is the priority to take what will be a couple of years, in my view, to decide what happened inside the White House? I think that ultimately will be out there. All kinds of books being written, all kinds of efforts to look at that. Can you believe that? Oh, there will be books. Let's wait for the Bob Woodward book. That'll have it. We don't need to do an investigation. Is it really important to find out what's going on in the White House? Just a complete lack of recognition. 
recognition that they have a responsibility themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just crazy to see how when directly confronted with the question, Blunt essentially admits that, no, we're not going to have answers to these, these burning issues of what happened in the White House. And instead, my position is you should just wait for the book to come out. By who? I don't know. Somebody. Somebody's going to get to the bottom of it. I don't know. Apparently, that's not important to him. Crazy. Crazy. So I want to end this with a final clip from Fox News Sunday. Charles Lane once again summing up where this is in the constellation of recent actions by Republicans. More importantly, I think they feel, the Republicans feel, that they have to move, just like they had to squash Liz Cheney uh, to change the subject, they have to squash this to change the subject so they have a clearer field in 2022. I I just want to say that, uh, you know, this is one where the Democrats are galvanized and united and have sort of logic and truth in their direction, and the Republicans are divided and fighting against the pretty clear merits of the subject. So that was an interesting way to put it. Democrats are united and on the right side of this, and Republicans are divided and on the wrong side of it. Once again, what a party. That's my politics section. Naomi, what's going on in journalism on your shows? So I wanted to look at face the nation and the ways in which John Dickerson continued the conversation and questions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This was pretty much non-existent on State of the Union. Dana Bash did have a question or two about anti-Semitism in the U.S. and or growing anti-Semitism, but nothing about the conflict itself. Wow, that's pretty surprising. Yeah, I uh, did not make sense to me. I had a few thoughts about Dickerson's approach. First, he had on Senator Bernie Sanders. Now, if you remember, Bernie Sanders last week wrote an op-ed, I believe it was in the Washington Post, talking about how the U.S. needs to essentially re-examine their support for Israel slash Netanyahu. And John Dickerson brought that op-ed into the story, as well as Netanyahu's response to some of the claims of Sanders's op-ed. And it was just kind of a really nice like way to bring it back full, full circle. You mentioned an even-handed approach. When I read a portion of your uh, editorial to the Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, he thought it was preposterous, your claim that he had created the conditions uh, and uh, that had that he'd made peace impossible because he said, how do you have negotiations with Hamas? They are dedicated to the destruction of Israel. President Biden again said that this week when he said until the region says unequivocally they acknowledge the right of Israel to exist as an independent Jewish state, there will be no peace. How do you have an even handed approach to terrorists who want to destroy Israel? Well, what you have got to do is also understand that Over the years, the Netanyahu government has become extremely right-wing, and that there are people in the Israeli government now who are overt racists. You have in West uh, Jerusalem people being evicted from their homes. Tremendous pressure on people within Israel, the Arab community, as well as Gaza. So you have a very difficult situation. You have Hamas, a terrorist group, You have a right-wing Israeli government, and the situation is getting worse. And all that I'm saying is that the United States of America has got to be leading the world in bringing people together, not simply supplying weapons 
to kill children in Gaza. This last series of attacks killed 64 children and destroyed a large part of the infrastructure of Gaza in a community that has already been one of the most uninhabitable territories in the world. That's really something to actually see this debate play out between Sanders and the Prime Minister of Israel right here on Face the Nation. That's kind of what I thought, too. Kudos for Dickerson kind of playing this long game across his interviews and getting these different perspectives. And there's very few moments where you feel like you get rewarded for being a loyal listener or loyal viewer of one of the shows. And this felt like something like, oh, I'm so glad I caught it last week and I can know exactly what he's talking about this week. Yeah, really, really interesting to see. And I thought that Sanders here gave a a really solid answer. The previous answer he gave was talking about how we need to kind of support both sides. And like, it just, it felt like a Bernie Sanders go-to answer except for foreign policy, essentially. And this answer, I thought, was more specific in his criticisms of Netanyahu's administration. And I thought reflected his understanding of the conflict way better than other things I had seen. Yeah, it's not often on these Sunday shows that we hear a unique answer from Senator Sanders that we haven't heard five or six times before. That is true. And so... (laughs) This is uh, something new from him that I haven't heard exactly before. I am genuinely giving Bernie Sanders a compliment here. That also never happens. So newness all around. And then to kind of wrap up my thoughts on the way John Dickerson talked about this issue, I was kind of frustrated with an interview that he had with former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. Apparently, this is an interview that Face the Nation does every single year. Not really sure why. It's important to revisit older white men who formerly had lots of power in the government. And we need to continue perpetually forever their say and voice and stranglehold on the national conversation. So there were a lot of instances that bothered me in this interview. But this was tied to one, the Israeli-Palestinian. Palestinian conflict, which is why I'm incorporating here. But there were lots of moments like this in which Gates gives insight, but there isn't a lot of explanation. So we're just supposed to trust his deep expertise. I don't know. It. This is Gates's, we did our best. It's kind of screwed over their response. I think there's very little prospect of uh, a peace between them at this point. I don't think there has been uh, in quite a long time. And I think I think, in fact, one of the things that produced the breakthrough with the Abraham Accords uh, between the Israelis and the Gulf states and others has been sort of essentially setting aside the Palestinian issue and and moving on uh, to a, a region that has changed in some pretty dramatic ways, um, which basically leaves the Palestinians out in the cold. Is it consistent with U.S. national interests and values to leave the Palestinians out in the cold? I certainly don't think it's consistent with our values, but, you know, John, the truth is almost every president has made a a real effort. And so these efforts have been stymied time and time again. And, And I would say there have been Israeli prime ministers who were actually interested in a solution, but but the Palestinians couldn't bring themselves to say yes. 
Okay, so there's no explanation as to what the Abraham Accords were or when he talks about presidents have tried their best, what which what, presidents which are these? Presidents, Can we have some what, specifics? What was the strategies that got closed? What was what were things that maybe we should try again? What how have things changed as regimes have changed in Israel? Like literally just like we tried, we've done it, we've done our due like our due diligence. It's up to them now. Like, what is the actionable thing to do here if you are a policymaker or a staffer for a politician in DC. Like there there's nothing here from the Gates interview that's just like, oh, okay, all right, this is this is will shape my thinking on this. And the idea and, and this is kind of the same tone that we got in a lot of different issues in this regrettably long oh my long ass interview well, that happens every year. It sounds like every single year. This man has retired from his role in public service no he's now a yeah in public service he's now a chancellor at william and mary right and while dickerson was at william and mary he also interviewed the president of william and mary on the show yes why to talk about like education was dickerson giving the commencement address at william and mary is that why he was there i don't know it seemed like he was there to interview gates and then he interviewed the president of william and mary apparently she talked to her last week last year too but margaret brennan I guess so. I just... No, maybe it was for 60 minutes he did it. It was just weird. This is what I mean. There was, like, not a through line on the shows. Well, the point I was making a moment ago was that Gates seems to have retired from public service, and now he's taking, like, very retiring positions on all these issues. He's like, look, I'm done with this. I tried. I was part of it. We as the government, we tried. We're part of it. And John Dickerson is like... So should we just leave these people out in the cold? Is this part of our values? And he's like, look, we tried. I tried. You know, that's it. You know, we're done. We're done. I'm done. Everyone's done. We're done with this. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. At one point in the interview, Dickerson's asks Secretary Gates about Biden. Like, how is Biden doing? You know, and Biden or, or Gates says something like, oh, we disagreed on a lot of things, but he's trying his best or whatever. And he he said something to the effect of like, I used to not I used to think I, I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't be able to like kind of still be in service or be president because of my age. But now maybe because Biden is they're essentially the same age and Gates and seeing Biden as president has changed Gates's thinking on very older senior men never retiring. <laughs> like, oh, wonderful. Please, God, do not let that be the takeaway of the Biden administration to other old white men. Like, keep working. <laughs> well, literally today, the oldest man won the PGA and... He was like 51 or 53. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And literally... A few weeks ago, the oldest actor in Anthony Hopkins <laughs> won Best Actor. So it's just like old, 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 old. The old. They yeah. don't stop. I mean, good for Can't them. Can't stop, I won't guess. stop. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Brendan, help us close out the show. What's your something in journalism? Well, I hope people enjoyed talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because once again, we are aligned on our. It's almost like process. We have a life together and read similar things and respect similar thought leaders and seek out similar information. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so here's, I want to highlight a few different things about this topic as it was covered on the shows that I looked at. And it's going to be actually interesting to look at in journalism because I felt there were a few things that were done really well and a few things not done well. And I kind of like tip my hat towards that in the rating section. But let's begin with what was done well. We often talk about the value of signposting, right? When there's actually an interview taking place and the guest of the interview says something and the host pauses and brings attention to it so that the audience notes, oh, look, this was meaningful, right? You might not know everything on this topic as an audience member, but you should know that what this guest just said here is worth highlighting and maybe even going back to. Here is George Stephanopoulos doing exactly that in his interview with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And here they are talking about the ceasefire that has occurred between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Well, first, George, it was critical to get to the ceasefire. And President Biden's focus on relentless, determined, but uh, quiet diplomacy is what got us to, uh, to where we needed to be, uh, which is to get the violence ended as quickly as possible, uh, to, uh, to stop more human suffering, and to at least put ourselves in a position to make a turn, to make a pivot, to building something uh, more positive. That has to start now with dealing with the, uh, the grave humanitarian situation uh, in Gaza, uh, then uh, reconstruction, uh, rebuilding what's, what's been lost, and critically, uh, engaging both sides in trying to um, start to make real improvements in, um, uh, in the lives of, of people so that Israelis and Palestinians can live with equal measures of security, uh, of peace, and of dignity. You stress that word equal right there. That seems to be a new emphasis for this administration. We haven't heard that a lot in the past, equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. Well, it's, it's vitally important that, uh, that Palestinians uh, feel hope uh, and have opportunity and can live in security, just as it is for Israelis. And there should be equal measures. Uh, and in a, in a democratic society, uh, that is, I think, an obligation uh, of, the, uh, of, of any government. Equal was also used in a clip at the beginning of the show of Joe Biden saying, I believe the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely. So I really appreciated George noting that equal might be this new kind of diplomatic policy almost goal of the Biden administration. Maybe a two-state solution is beyond their grasp. However, if the people can equally access security, maybe that's something that the Biden administration thinks is possible. Similarly to great signposting, there was great framing by Chris Wallace in his interview with a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And joining us now from Jerusalem, Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. Ambassador, how confident are you that this ceasefire will last? Back in 2014, the last major outbreak of violence, it took nine truces over 56 days before Israel and Hamas finally stopped fighting. What are the chances we're going to see that again? Well, as you've just said, after that round of fighting in 2014, we did receive over half a decade of relative peace and quiet. And so that is possible, and I hope we can do that again. <laughs> so hope we can do that again isn't necessarily the answer I expected when Chris said, 
what are the chances we're going to see this ceasefire not lasting? (laughs) But the senior advisor basically ignored the nine truces over 56 days that it took in 2014. But I really did appreciate that from Chris Wallace because Chris Wallace's whole position, the whole show's position in framing this issue earlier was, you know, this is a very tenuous ceasefire. It might not last. The violence might spark up once again. And so providing that context from Chris Wallace in his opening question for the audience to truly understand, oh yeah, this doesn't always mean, you know, ceasefire doesn't always mean that it's going to last. The last time it took nine times. So the idea that violence in the Middle East and Israel has truly stopped, don't assume that that's necessarily the case right now. Which makes the decision by State of the Union not to discuss it even that much more fascinating because if history is our guide, the the violence is going to resurface and we're going to need another ceasefire. It's just stories about Israel. It's obviously foreign affairs, but the U.S. is so ingrained in Israeli politics that it feels more integrated than most news about other countries. And so it's, it's a very strange, like, we're not getting the details, but also no one knows this area either, which then means we don't get any details. It's it's weird. Yeah, it's a very, and it's something that we haven't, since, since we started Polylog in 2017, we haven't had a flare-up of this violence that we have covered on the Sunday shows, and it's been a while since clearly they have done so. I, I want to next take people's attention to how the Sunday shows present literally the same criticism to Israel in different ways, okay? This is like a tale of two takes. Here is how George Stephanopoulos presented the criticism that you mentioned earlier, Naomi, that Bernie Sanders made towards Israel. And this is in a question to, again, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. The president reiterated his strong support of Free Israel on Friday, but he's coming under increased pressure from progressives. Bernie Sanders has introduced a resolution of disapproval over a new arms sale to Israel. Others like Rashida Tlaib and AOC say the U.S. should not be rubber stamping arms sales to Israel when they use the weapons to abuse Palestinian rights. What's your response to that? Well, happily, uh, George, one of the things I don't do in this job is I don't do politics. Uh, I I focus on the policy, so I'll leave the politics to others. But here's what I can say. When it comes to arms sales, uh, two things. First, the president's been equally clear. We are committed to giving Israel the means uh, to defend itself, especially when it comes to these indiscriminate rocket attacks uh, against civilians. Uh, Any country would respond to that, uh, and we're committed to Israel's defense. At the same time, uh, any arms sale is going to be done uh, in full consultation with Congress. We're committed to that, uh, and we want to make sure that that process works effectively. So did you catch there how George Stephanopoulos asked the question? He explained the position of Rashida Tlaib, AOC, and Bernie Sanders, and then he said to Anthony Blinken, what's your response to that criticism? Seems pretty straightforward. But Chris Wallace, he didn't do it that way. Here's how Chris Wallace presented practically that same criticism to the senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. One difference is that this time Israel came under some heavy fire from the left wing of the Democratic Party. And I want to play some of the clips of that kind of rhetoric this past week. Take a look, sir. Palestinians aren't going anywhere, no matter how much money you send to Israel's apartheid government. Every rocket and bomb that targets civilians is a war crime. Benjamin Netanyahu 
has cultivated an increasingly intolerant and authoritarian type of racist nationalism. Ambassador, do you worry that Israel is losing support among some major political elements here in the United States? And to what degree that you're losing that support, does that bolster Hamas and hurt Israel? Well, I can tell you this morning, before coming to this interview, I looked at the polling and I saw that the overwhelming majority of the American people stand with Israel, support Israel, are favorable towards Israel. So did you see what Chris Wallace did here? Chris Wallace played a number of clips, but his question was not actually asking for the representative of Israel to defend Israel against these criticisms. No, no, no. Chris Wallace's question was, to what degree does losing support of America and these American representatives bolster Hamas and hurt Israel? So Chris Wallace's question, again, is not about finding the answer to that criticism. Chris Wallace is essentially saying that criticism potentially helps Israel's enemies. Well, and he's already assuming that the criticism is wrong. Right. And then asking the representative from Israel saying, what are you doing to combat this criticism, which is supporting or bolstering your, your enemy, right? Your, your opponent. Right. As opposed to taking at face value something that publicly elected officials are saying about Israel and then asking the representative saying, what is your response? Which is what John Dickerson did last week with Benjamin Netanyahu saying, Bernie Sanders is saying this. What's your response? Right. Which is the more appropriate just kind of people here in the U.S. don't agree. This is what they're saying. How do you how do you respond? And look at some of the language that Chris Wallace uses to present this. He begins the question, if you go back to the start of that quote, with these words. One difference is that this time Israel came under some heavy fire from the left wing of the Democratic Party. So Israel was actually under true heavy fire when thousands of rockets were fired from Hamas into Israel. That is heavy fire. Criticism from representatives in the Congress of the United States is not heavy fire. I think some important distinction or rules should be made where you don't use these incendiary terms when there is actually true incendiary things being fired during wartime. It is ridiculous. This characterized much of the interview that Chris Wallace had with the Israeli representative. It was full of these questions that seemed to have criticism in them, but in fact were critical of the criticism or questions that seemed to present difficult issues but then ultimately had like a softball question at the end of them. For example, here's a perfect example of what seems like a strong fact that is completely undermined by a softball question. There is no question that Hamas started the military conflict of firing 4,300 rockets into Israel and killing at least a dozen Israelis. But I think you would agree that the toll was much heavier uh, on the Hamas side uh, in Gaza. And I want to put up some numbers on that. At least 248 Palestinians killed, including 66 children and 39 women, 
800,000 people in Gaza do not currently have access to pipe water. Ambassador, any second thoughts about whether the Israeli response during these 11 days was proportionate? They were firing thousands of rockets, as you just said, on our civilian population. They were trying to murder our people in their homes. We were defending ourselves. Our operation was fundamentally designed simply to protect our civilian population. So all these facts about civilian casualties and the impact on human lives. But the actual question is, any second thoughts about whether the Israeli response during these 11 days was proportionate? What kind of question is that? Any thoughts about whether what you're doing is the right thing to do? You're, a, you're on a show that is focused on politics. Nobody in politics is going to admit to having second thoughts about their stated policy, their, their actual actions. People don't do that. Whether they're Trump or Biden or any press secretary and certainly not somebody representing a foreign power during a period of military conflict. If there are second thoughts, I promise you, they will not air them on your morning news show. This is absurd. It is an absurd, just awful softball question. It's an invitation to reiterate their policy rather than to address critical issues. Well, Brendan, this gets me thinking about my segment last week about our expectations when foreign leaders go on the show and... And I think there's there's such a range of approaches that we see. And it seems to me like, at least in the clips that you've shown, that Chris Wallace was way more deferential and accommodating to this advisor to Netanyahu than Dickerson was to Netanyahu himself. Absolutely. 100%. All right, Naomi. Well, that takes us to the dialogue challenge today. How about less deference more critical questions and engagement listen this is my life motto you're all welcome to join me (laughs) i am here for this dialogue challenge awesome well that's it for (laughs) polylog if you want to be less deferential and more critical you are welcome to do that by emailing us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at seronaomi underscore you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast, and you can tweet at me at Beastidal. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.